Good morning, everyone. The ones of you who were here last week maybe remember that when we were preparing ourselves for communion, I was reflecting on that Jesus is the center, that Christ is the center of our faith. And when we say this, this is a confession for us, a theological and spiritual statement. And as a congregation, we enjoy Jesus' resurrection presence through the work of the Holy Spirit here in our midst. And I'm very thankful for this privilege to be part of a congregation where Jesus is present. But sometimes I'm wondering how that would have felt, how that would have been to be physically in the presence of Jesus 2,000 years ago. How that would have felt when Jesus was literally in the center of the crowds and the masses surrounding him. So for this reason, one of my favorite Bible stories is the well-known story of the healing of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And I would like to read that to you. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I just love this story. And maybe the reason why I love this story is that I can see myself so easily in this picture. As a, as a guy in the crowd who works his way through the masses to, to get a glance on Jesus. And then I can imagine myself in the room and suddenly feeling some dirt on my shoulders, in my hair, and, and I'm looking up and there's a hole in the roof. And a face appears. And the guy's yelling, out of the way, we are letting somebody down. And I, and I can see the amazement when, when Jesus heals this man and gets up, 
walks out of the building. And of course, I also can see the indignation of the teachers of the law. Now, to get a full appreciation of this passage, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we need to view this passage within the overall context of the gospel of Mark, within the overall purpose and message of this gospel. And fortunately, this gospel is a very thankful one because Mark tells us right from the get-go what his work is all about. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in verse 14, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So when we look at this passage, then we know that this passage makes a contribution to the overall purpose and message of Mark, which is to show what the gospel of God is, what the gospel of Jesus is, what this kingdom is. And just as a puzzle piece contributes to the overall picture or a piece of a mosaic to the overall piece of art, so our passage makes a contribution to tell us what this gospel is all about. And I don't think it is difficult to see what our passage makes here as its contribution, namely that the gospel of Jesus Christ entails wholeness, spiritual and physical healing. That reminds us on the time right at the beginning of the Bible, before the fall in the Garden of Eden, only that the timeline is moving forward and not backward. So we are looking forward to a new creation. And the Gospel of Mark presents a vision of a kingdom of God that entails a new creation, or some people call it a new creational kingdom. And Jesus conveys this message very cleverly because he connects the physical healing that everybody can see with the invisible reality of forgiveness of sins and spiritual healing. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's kind of a short sermon, Michael. <laughs> I barely got comfortable in my chair, and you want to send us into the cold again. Well, I'm not yet done, at least um, not yet. Because I think we need, before we go home, we first need to answer the question, why is there conflict in the story? Why are the teachers of the law getting upset with what Jesus is doing. When Jesus tells this fellow, your sins are forgiven, he assumes a prerogative. He assumes an authority as the son of man that only belongs to God to forgive sins. And that is what's making them upset. And usually when we discuss this question, or at least traditionally, this question has led down into the field of systematic theology. And then we would argue, well, this is an evidence that Jesus is God, well, evidence for Jesus' divinity, and that within the Trinity, with the Father and Holy Spirit, it is the Son 
who rounds it up. But I want to go down a different path today because I'm thinking that Jesus is conducting here a more covert operation. And it looks like as if the teachers of the law are catching on to this. Because I don't think when, when they are thinking, you know, he's blaspheming, only God can forgive sins, that they are saying Jesus is identifying or making him equal with Yahweh, the God of Israel. I think they are alarmed because of something else. How in the Old Testament, how in the Pentateuch, the Torah, how has God stipulated the people of Israel deal with their sins? Well, you go to the temple, or in the beginning you went to the tabernacle, you go to the temple with your sacrifice, and then the priests are officiating and taking care of things and probably pronounce that things have been taken care of. And now your sin or whatever it was is dealt with. But Jesus is challenging this. Jesus is challenging the physical temple in Jerusalem and its priesthood. Because what he is conveying through his action is that a time has come where you no longer need to go to Jerusalem. Instead, you can come to me and receive forgiveness of sins. Jesus is promoting here, covertly, an alternative temple and an alternative priesthood. And that is what upsets the teachers of the law. Because he's telling them, I am this alternative temple and this alternative priesthood, even high priesthood. Now, I must admit, this is not necessarily a new insight. Probably heard about this before, and theologians have talked about this for a long time. However, usually when we talk about Jesus being the priest or even the high priest, we talk this within the context of the book of Hebrews. And for a long time, it has been thought that only the book of Hebrews gives us the idea that Jesus is a priest, even a high priest. But I think we can make the case that we find this idea already in the Gospels. And that our passage makes a contribution to that. Now, if you step back for a bit and look at all of the Gospels, all four Gospels, and trace Jesus life and what he's been doing, I think we can see that he emerges as the quintessential worshiper. He's born into a very devout Jewish family. We know from the Christmas story, Joseph is doing everything what the angel of the Lord is telling him. He's a righteous man. After Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary go to the temple and do the required sacrifice. Jesus' parents regularly go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And we know that Jesus, on one occasion, as a 12-year-old, was there. And he was then found in the temple after everybody has been gone home. And in the Gospels, 
it appears that Jesus attended all Passover festivals during his public ministry, along with other pilgrimage feasts. On the Sabbath, he regularly goes to the synagogue. Of course, he teaches there and preaches there, but he's doing that what a, what a pious Jew, a pious worshiper would do. And we can notice that from all the people who are mentioned in the Gospels, it is Jesus who most frequently is reported to be praying to retreat on a mountaintop or just to retreat and pray. There are a few others, but over and over we can see that Jesus is praying. He is the quintessential worshiper. Now when we zoom back to our book of Mark, we can also trace that not only in the chapter 2 which we read, but even before, he is on a priestly mission. So for instance, in chapter 1, so basically right after he begins his ministry, we read in chapter 1, verse... 23, oh, sorry, 21, I guess I need glasses. Uh, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently, and he came out with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, Who is this? Or what is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, what is being translated in the NIV as an evil spirit is actually, in the original text, an unclean spirit. And this unclean spirit identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God. And this designation is nothing else than a priestly designation for the priesthood, for the Aaronic, for the Aaronic priesthood. And so Jesus is here as a high priest who is cleansing the land of the demonic forces that take hold of it. Then there is another episode that brings it even more to our attention. A little bit further down, we read in verse 40, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town opening, but stayed outside in lonely places. And the people still came to him from everywhere. 
clean and unclean were the, definitely the realm, the dominion of the priests. But instead, this leper comes to Jesus and he makes this poor man clean and pronounces him to be clean. A clearly priestly activity. When we come back now to our passage in chapter 2, we can see within these events that Jesus is here acting as a priest, even a high priest, and as a temple. And it is interesting to see that he, as a priest, a high priest in the temple, is accessible to everyone. Think about this. This paralytic man who lives in Capernaum, would this person ever have the chance to come to Jerusalem and go to the temple? That would have been a lot to ask from the four friends to bring this man to Jerusalem. But even more so, in the following episode that they are going to read, see that Jesus is not only accessible to everyone, but he's coming to people. He's pursuing to people. And most importantly, I think, he apparently has no need to protect his ritual purity. You see that in pretty, pretty drastically in passages in Mark chapter 5. You know this passage very well. I'm pretty sure it says here in my, in my Bible, the heading, a dead girl and a sick woman. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. 
When they came to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now the astonishing thing that becomes surface here that Jesus as the high priest apparently does not care, has no need to protect his ritual purity. Instead he's seeking out the crowds and then following this poor man to his house. And when this woman touches him, he should be upset because that would render him ritual unclean. And in the same way, when he hears that the daughter is dead, he should not go into that house because everyone who is in the house of a person who just died will be rendered unclean. No priest in his right mind would do this, but Jesus does. Just let us take the perspective of the woman and, and this man, you know. They must have been amazed. And this woman, when she reveals herself to Jesus, she's scared because she knows what she did. But instead, Jesus forgives her sins and says, Your faith has healed you. You know, she must be completely. astonished and, and, and taken away by who is this man? And the same way with this synagogue ruler. Who is this man who comes into my house where my daughter died? And when he touches her, he's not getting unclean, but rather she gets well and gets up. In our context, what we've been discussing, now Jesus as the high priest and as a temple you can observe that Jesus is the sacred space somehow who, instead of getting unclean, makes thing, unseen things clean, who heals things. When people touch him, they get clean and pure and healed. Now for us, this idea that you, know, you would not enter the the house of someone where somebody just died, or, or that is completely incomprehensible. But the, the concern for ritual purity was real in this society. And Jesus actually uses an illustration, an example, in one of his parables that you all know. He uses to demonstrate what that meant in real life outcomes, namely in the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Now, when this poor traveler is, is robbed and, and beaten and heavily injured, a Levite and a priest pass. And they both go to the side. They go far, pass him far, kind of far away as possible. And the reason I think is simply, they know if they help him, even if this guy dies on them, they will be ritually, ritually unclean and then not fit to serve in the temple. But Jesus is doing the opposite. Now, when we want to summarize what we have been looking at and studying in, well, studying in our brief survey of this passage, then we can add another perspective to what the Gospel of Mark is all about. Namely, that it, the Gospel of Mark is promoting a, a, the kingdom of God, a, a new creation of kingdom as the gospel of Jesus that we need to think of foremost in priestly terms that Jesus is speaking here of a temple kingdom and we will explore this more in detail over the next three Sundays and then also see how that relates to us as a church and a congregation but for today I want to close my talk with with two takeaway points that I think are relevant for us as a congregation. Let me first, Jesus appears here as a mobile temple, a mobile high priest who is coming to the people, who is seeking the people, who is going into the crowds. And he's accessible to everyone. It's not that he's kind of secluded somewhere, sitting with restricted access, but rather Everyone can come to him. And so I'm wondering, how does Jesus' action, how does this inform our ministry to our community here in Wainwright? To anyone who is not part of a church. To all the ones who are at the fringes of our society and our community. And then secondly, somehow I think we all can see us as the paralytic. Because after all, we are here, we have come to faith in Jesus Christ and come, come to the church community because at some point in our lives we realized we need Jesus to find spiritual healing. And of course we know we live in this time between the first and second coming and, and physical healing is a reality that we are not experiencing yet. Yes, sometimes we, we are getting healed of of a disease or something, but still we die. We know that only when Jesus is coming back and the new creation is happening that then we will fully experience spiritual and physical healing and wholeness. But I want to change the perspective and, and challenge us to see us as one of the friends. As one of these four guys who, who carry this paralytic to Jesus. And ask ourselves, what can I do when I come to our church or when we are in, in, in fellowship? What can I do that my neighbor, my brother and sister in Christ, anyone for that matter who comes to our church can find healing in our congregation? 
particularly in this time of transition, that we all ask ourselves, what is my contribution that anyone who comes to our church finds peace? Find the peace of heart and healing with Jesus.